1: Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today I'm once again talking with Robert Seda Schreiber. Robert is the chief activist at the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice in New Jersey. The center was named for the civil rights leader, who was the primary architect of the 1963 March on Washington. The center is in an educational enclave and a safe space for all people. The Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice was established with the explicit consent of Rustin's partner, Walter Nagel. Nagel now serves on the board providing community outreach. A lot has happened since Robert first introduced us to the Bayard Reston Center for Social Justice. It has a new home, led the first Pride Parade in Princeton, New Jersey, held book signings for LGBTQ authors while hosting a variety of community building programs. It's a pleasure to revisit the center's chief activist. Robert has been marching the path for justice and equality each and every day of his life. His boots have always been on the ground, both literally and figuratively. A former educator, as chief activist, Robert has moved forward with his experience, knowledge, and passion to bring his service to a greater platform to serve and defend the LGBTQIA community. His passion is in part driven by memories of a beloved uncle who was gay, but couldn't come out because his father wouldn't have understood. Also, as an adolescent, Robert remembers seeing these issues of identity, especially for youth, being shrouded in secrecy and instilling a sense of shame and wrongness on his peers. Robert, welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Okay. It's so great to hear
2: your voice again. Well, it's really good to hear your voice again. So how's life been? Oh, a belated happy birthday to you.
3: Thank you so much.
2: <laughs> yeah, that
3: was that was a pretty incredible night. Um, everything's been really extraordinary,
2: mm-hmm.
3: really extraordinary.
2: Here you are in your second year, you know, with the center. I know the first year, I mean, you did so many things. Uh, what after the first year what did you take away from the work you've done and as far as it setting the direction for what you were going to do next year
3: that's a a great question that's something I think about literally each and every day Um, Mm -hmm. I think about the fact that that I get to talk to you again and that we get to have (laughs) this experience again and no it's Mm -hmm. true I, I, I think that Last time we spoke, I was okay. in my studio in my house with my family, and that's what the center was being run out of at that time. And the very fact that now we are in a physical space, in a beautiful um, space that serves as our headquarters, that we welcome people each and every day. And I never imagined that. You know, I thought that we'd have a physical space for our events, for our gatherings, for our happenings, for other nonprofits to use, which we do often, we allow other nonprofits to use our space free of charge to help the community. But what mm. happens now is something I never imagined. And there's so many things that I never imagined happening. And I did imagine so very much. But one mm-hmm. of the other things I didn't imagine, people come in, and we have a social justice library that we've built over the past year, over 300 books donated by the community. People come in and sit on our beanbag chairs that were donated to us by our friends over at High Tops. Um, mm-hmm. And they sit there on these beanbag chairs and they and they read for hours, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's members of various communities, you know, our transgender friends, uh, LGBTQIA in general, but also, you know, we have immigrant families that come in. We have our differently abled folks. We have, you know, people from so many beautifully diverse communities come in and join us. Um, you know, Saturdays, I come in each Saturday and it's it's what I call my catch-up day. It's the day that I'm not going to get phone calls. I'm not going to get emails like the deluge I get on a weekday so I can catch up and, and get back to folks who deserve my respect and attention that sometimes don't get it during the week because things are so wonderfully busy here. Mm-hmm. But invariably, on Almost every Saturday, I'll get a visitor. Someone will just drop by, and whether it's uh, an ally of the center, someone who wants to volunteer, or this last Saturday, I have to tell you, you know, and each and every day is a story. You know, uh, a former student of mine. I was a school teacher for mm-hmm. almost 25 years, and a former student of mine, just by coincidence, a former student, was recommended by the local Baptist church, who is transitioning. Mm -hmm. and need support and guidance and kindness and respect. And they knew that he could get it here. They could get it here. Forgive me, they could get it here. And they came in, and we spent over two hours talking and sharing. And they told me that Thanksgiving was a day of great giving of thanks for them because they came out to their family for the first time. And the family was, for the most part, supportive which is such a wonderfully rare thing. And that night, their cousin put makeup on them for the first time and Mm -hmm. they showed me pictures and they were so proud and they felt so good and it was just such a moment for me. And I can't think about it without crying, honestly, Mm -hmm. because I think about this journey I've taken, that, that this person was in my classroom and now they're in my center our center, I should say, Mm -hmm. and we get to share this time, and they get to be a part of my journey now, and I get to be part of their journey. And then on top of that, while we were together, they posted that picture on Mm -hmm. social media. And, of course, that's a tense moment, too, because they don't know how their friends are going to react, how people are going to see that, going to... And nothing but positivity came back, And I was able to witness that and be party to that. And the fact that people trust us and allow us to be part of their lives, of their journeys, of their transitions, of their difficulties, of their sorrows, and their victories is something that I will never, ever take for granted and always cherish.
2: How did you come to have this space?
3: Um, well, you know, everything is a story and everything is serendipitous.
0: <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I,
3: I have to say this, that the journey to the center and the journey that is constant and every day we move forward, it, 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 I have to say this, it's made me a strong believer for about six months or so, I would say, you know, we're so lucky or we're so fortunate. It became it, – it actually, this is how – this is exactly – the evolution of of the vocabulary. First it was luck, then it was fortune, and now I have to believe it's serendipity. Now I have to believe Mm -hmm. that there's karma involved, that there's some force that because we're trying so hard to do so good for so many, that it is coming back to us, and it allows us to do that much more for so many more. Um, So the space was one of those things that – We traveled the entire state of New Jersey, up and down, all around. We looked at so many different spaces. We actually were uh, a weekend away from buying a renovated firehouse in Lambertville, New Jersey. There was a gorgeous space, but that Mm -hmm. didn't work out. We looked at a purple church in Cream Ridge out in the (laughs) middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. We looked at um, a beautiful renovated house across from uh, a municipal courthouse in Freehold. We looked at so many different spaces. We looked at, at a, a mansion in Heightstown, New Jersey, that was just gorgeous, had a spiral staircase, and had a piece of architecture from Napoleon's brother's house, right? Wow. There are so many stories and so many spaces mm-hmm. we were in, and we thought we would live in this space. My family would live in the same space, the center. But mm-hmm. then one day I was walking with Carol Watchler and Carol – is one of those people who has done this work for over five decades, um, who is my inspiration, and she is our community outreach coordinator. Mm-hmm. So Carol and I were walking one day, and we were going to have lunch with Reverend Alexis Fuller-Wright. I want to mention her name because she's been an incredible supporter. She is the pastor at Christ Congregation here in Princeton, one of the most affirming spaces I've ever seen. And mm-hmm. we've done a program with them, since before we had a physical space, um, she came to us and said, hey, I want our congregation to learn how to be better allies. And the only way to be the best allies is to hear the stories from the community. And we have done um, the first Sunday of the month, we go to widening the welcome with them, and we bring our allies to tell their stories and to share in a potluck and to share in that space. So we're going to meet with her for lunch uh, in town. It was me and Carol and... Reverend Alexis. On the way back from lunch, there was a sign on a side street that said, oh, property for rent. But at this point, we were thinking about anything that would work. And we had just coincidentally had our first rally. And our first rally was a Families Belong Together rally, which was last June in Princeton. And we really expected a couple of hundred people to show up at most. And we thought that we would have a wonderful event and we invited our allies from the Latin American Legal Defense Fund and uh, the Coalition for Peace Action and a whole bunch of other organizations that I knew could speak better to the immigrant family issue than, than we could, and that's what we always do, bring our allies together, right? So mm-hmm. we had this rally, and it, was, um, it turned out to be over 850 people strong, a really strong contingent of support and kindness and warmth and love in this community. So it became something that was very much on our radar. So I said, let's walk down this side street. We walked up and down, didn't see a sign at all. So we thought, okay, well, that was, you know, it was worth the walk with a beautiful sight, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Carol said that she wanted to stop High Tops. And High Tops is a great organization here in town um, that has done so much for our teen LGBTQIA community for so, so very long for Um, decades now. And we are inspired by them. When I was a school teacher, they were so supportive of me as I started the first Gay Straight Alliance in a middle school in New Jersey. Their organization came out and the wonderful Karina O'Hara came out and was with us uh, more than a few times and gave us that support. So Carol said, you know what, I want to stop by our friends at High Tops and say hi and meet some of the new folks that are there. That'd be really wonderful. So I thought, great, let's do that. So we stopped by High Tops. And here's where serendipity is the property mm-hmm. that was for rent was their auxiliary, uh, property house mm-hmm. that was used as their, um, teen sexual education and awareness center. Before that it was a midwifery in and- actions.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So as we, as we're going to say hi and as we're saying hi to our you know, old friends and new friends, the person who was in charge of their financial concerns said, Hey, just come see the space. And, you know, it's just a a beautiful space, and I wanted to, you know, let's just share some time there. We walked in, and Carol and I looked at each other and just felt it was right. And at the time, again, it was a medical office for so long, so there were five different rooms, and it took a lot of vision to see past that. But we knew that there was potential here. And what better neighbors to have than high tops? So we, we... walked in, and we started the talk of how we could make it work. And Mm -hmm. lo and behold, um, less than a month later, we uh, turned the key and opened the door to our new headquarters, and then within a few months, knocked down all those walls, Mm -hmm. and now we have 560 square feet of open communal space for our community to use for our drag shows, for our uh, empowering events, like we had a wonderful event with Monica Nemeth, who is the first openly transgender person elected to public office in Washington, D.C., and Dean Daffis, who came to that event as the first openly gay member of elected office to Maplewood, New Jersey, Mm -hmm. and uh, that was a wonderful event that we called um, Empowerment Through Election of Our LGBTQI Community. And out of that, Dean Daffis became one of our board members because we were were so taken with each other's work and what we knew we could do together. And now he and I are talking with a council person here in Princeton, Dwayne Williamson, um, and there are a couple of houses that are not being used. And one of the hugest problems here in New Jersey, um, this past summer, we had the incredible honor of being on a couple of different LGBTQI advocacy panels with both uh, Governor Murphy and Senator Menendez. And the biggest thing that we heard was the lack of beds for our LGBTQI mm-hmm. youth. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it hurt me, and I knew that it was not something that, that we was in our purview, but it was something that, I, that whenever I hear these things, I always keep them and hold them and know that if there's some point we can do something about these issues, I will. And lo and behold, when I heard of these two properties, I thought, what a perfect opportunity to make them shelters for our homeless and our runaway and our abandoned LGBTQI youth. So Dean and Dwayne and I have been working toward that end And, you know, if it doesn't happen at these properties, at least, you know, there's always creating that foundation of the opportunity. So if it doesn't happen this time, at least we've started the process and the conversation and the dreaming and scheming about it happening, and we will make it happen at some point.
2: I know when I look at the pictures of the center, I mean, it's interesting, as you were telling me about the medical medical offices, because one of the things that impressed me when I first saw it was, First of all, the windows, but then that huge open space that lends itself to so many things. You know, I saw, you know, yoga happening. I saw someone read a drag queen reading. We have that here where they have them go to the library. I mean, it just sort of lends itself to so many things as being a welcoming place, a center, almost like, for lack of a but it's more than a center it's a home it's so open that you can come there and see and feel and be a part of so much
3: I love that that you can see that just through the pictures that you can get the love and the warmth and the openness mm-hmm. that was always mm-hmm. my dream mm-hmm. you know my parents taught me that my parents you know everything I do comes from their inspiration You know, and it wasn't that they lectured me or talked at me, although my dad did. My dad is a talker, was a talker, and there'd be many, many conversations that were wonderfully long, Um, Uh but as far as principles and guidance and morals and respect, it was always by their behavior. It was always by just who they were. And I would come home at night when I was, you know, a teenager, and I would have friends in my house. You know, I'd been out with other people, and I had friends in my house. And I was like, what are you guys doing here? I was just out with so-and-so, and they're like, we just, we feel good here. We mm. feel comfortable here. We feel mm-hmm. welcome here. And what I realize now is my parents, before the term was, you know, uh, coined, had created a safe space. And that's mm-hmm. just what I'm doing now. That's just what we're doing now. And, mm-hmm. yes, we have our drag shows. We have one coming up. We actually, by the time this airs, it'll be passed, but um, – And we do an open and out mic night. So we have an open mic night for our LGBTQI community to come to, to, you know, be able to express themselves through poetry, singing, dancing, you know, whatever makes them happy in in sharing with others. Every week we have a free queer yoga um, and we have our teen action tank. We have teens who come in. And I know a lot of organizations have teen advisory boards. Mm -hmm. That That wasn't our nature. That's not who we are we have a teen action tank.
0: And what that Mm. is,
3: is these are teens who are are moving forward, who are not just talking about things, but doing things. And they're actually going to host their first event. They're doing a a film screening of a very difficult movie about mental health and how it affects people who are institutionalized, perhaps for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. And not only are they doing a screening, but afterwards they're having um the deputy public defender who's in charge of the mental health division who by the way happens to be my lovely bride and (laughs) um, and doctors and therapists and people who can answer questions from the difficulty of the movie but then move it forward on how we can help that sector of our community because mental health is not a stigma it should not be a stigma it should be something that we embrace and we say these are you know these are our issues we all have issues i Honestly, I will freely admit and and say that I suffer from anxiety with a capital A. And it's very difficult for me some days. But I I persevere and I power through and I know what it means in my head and what it means in my heart and how I can um, overcome it. And I have friends and allies and community that help me to see that. You know, if we have a, a sprained ankle or an upset stomach, we go to the doctor and we don't tell any, you know, we don't hesitate to tell somebody, I've heard to the doctor because I have a sub- stomach or I have a sprained ankle. But if you're having a difficulty with your emotional life or with your mental health, so many people are still shamed by that. Mm-hmm. And it's time for us to allow us, each other, to be a part of that journey too. For that to be something we lift up each other and say, no, I, I, have that too, or I suffer through this, I know that journey, I know that difficulty. And look what I'm doing, you know, Mm -hmm. and this is what we can do together. And that's one of the things that we're very involved with too. Uh, We're going to actually announce a big mental health initiative. We're doing a wonderful program with uh, the OCD and Anxiety Disorder Clinic here in Princeton. We're doing a, a workshop in a couple of weeks that's going to be discerning between Normal holiday stress and what is something that maybe you want to talk with someone about to help you, you know, have a better day and a better week and a better life and a a better family connection, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But we also, we offer every Thursday, every week, every Thursday from 4 to 7 p.m., we offer free and sliding scale therapy for LGBTQI youth. And we do that with the wonderful... Uh, Tracy Post, who runs a great um, therapy center here, and her associate, Ebony, is here. We also, as we're growing into that program, so not only do we have a drop-in center here at the center, but she sees people over there at her house. She has created a, a virtual spot where um, our youth can do it from their bedrooms you mm-hmm. know, and do it virtually through the computer, Because there are a lot of kids who, one, you know, don't have families who are supportive, Uh right? Or, two, don't Uh have the transportation, like just like a a physical need. So Uh for them, they have an opportunity to um, have this great, great service as well.
2: You know, I mean, and I think that that's that's so important, you know, because I always say, oh, well, it gets better, it gets better. That's an important part not only to talk about it, but, it that you know, but there's steps, too. It's not always easy, but also, you know, to break down that stigma and to sort of say, hey, sometimes you need to be able to get help through counseling and to remove that stigma, but then not just and to provide a place, a safe space, for to go in a space where you don't have to hear that, that hetero lens, you know, that, that says so much about being queer, that, you know, there's something wrong with you, that it's someone who's, who understands that you're okay, just as you are, we're going to help you be stronger. And I think it's wonderful that not only that you do it, that you have it where they can do it on the computer, and to do that because accessibility is more than handicapped ramps.
3: Exactly right, 100%. And that we're always looking to improve and to evolve and to make things better. We're not ever going to run a program, have it be something that's one-off. One, Mm -hmm. everything we do is exponential. So we want to see what we can spiral off from that. But two, we want to see how we can do it better next time. You know, for example, we had a queer potluck dinner, and it Mm -hmm. was our first event for our queer community because um, we haven't even talked about the Pride Parade that we threw, which was the first ever here in Princeton. Um, We can get into that later. Um, But after the parade, we had heard some folks who are like, well, you know, you didn't really address the queer community. You didn't bring them into the planning of the parade. Now, one, we were a little upset about that because Carol Watchler, who I mentioned before, um, who has done this work for five decades and is a proud and out feminist radical lesbian, was with me from the first second we imagined this parade. But there was a difficulty in reaching out to the community because you know why? There was no community. There were mm. a lot of individuals, a lot of folks who we went to in the planning process, but there was no dedicated community. So literally, the day after the parade, Carol, who's the person to do it because she's part of that community, put together a list of 60 or 70 names and people who we had spoken to throughout that process. And she brought them together. And she created a, a dedicated queer community. And since then, yeah. we have had potlucks. We, we, that's what the yoga came out of, the queer yoga. We have had the open-out mic night, which I mentioned. We've had a game night. We had a karaoke. And we're going you to have a dance party. I mean, these mm-hmm. are things that our queer community has been longing for. And we're so proud and honored that we can be of service. But here's the thing. Our first event for the queer community was a potluck, and again, tremendously successful. We expected you know, uh, a few people to show up, and it would be a nice, intimate gathering. We had 20 or 30 or more show up, and it was wonderful. Um, but the next day, as we're celebrating, and we're so thrilled and proud of what we accomplished, we had an intern with us from Harvard Divinity, Mm-hmm. And this intern um, is someone who is uh, transgender who uses the pronouns uh, they, them, and there, and told us that they were constantly misgendered at the event. So hmm. although they wanted to celebrate how wonderful the event was, they wanted to also let me know how difficult that aspect of it was. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm really, really proud of is the moment they told me, I said, we have to confront this. We have to celebrate how successful successful event was and how wonderful it was and how well populated and attended and received it was. But we also have to speak to this because mm-hmm. if you were uncomfortable, it's not about you being uncomfortable. It's about the community not being accepting of, of itself. Mm-hmm. So they did me the honor of writing this beautiful piece about what the night meant to them, but also how difficult it was in the process thereof. And we put it out there. And I knew that some of our community would be upset because, you know, we were basically calling some people out in a very respectful, kind way. But it's difficult for any of us to hear that we need to improve or that we haven't done our best for all our people. Mm -hmm. And what the wonderful thing was that everybody reacted beautifully, positively. And Our intern personally was emboldened and felt um, respected more than they had at the event itself. They were able to move forward from that. But also I feel like we had an opportunity to educate and to empower and to inspire, and we did that. And we're never going to rest on our laurels. We're never going to rest on our successes. We're always going to look to what could have been better And how can we best serve everybody who was involved? Mm
2: -hmm. So, Robert, we're going to take our first break here. But um, when we come back, I want to talk about that that pride and more on what you were just talking about. So we'll be right back. Mm We're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And, Robert, that first Pride event, how come there hadn't been a Pride event? I mean, you know, and how difficult was it to to organize that?
3: Well, that, that's, a, that's a question that will take a, <laughs> a few hours in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I, I think that um, Princeton is a very well-meaning community, and there's incredible support for so many of our diverse communities and people and folks here, I think people were looking for um, an organization that could bring it all together. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's
3: really what the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice is all about. I mean, we want to honor, you know, our namesake Bayard Rustin by always being intersectional, by always Mm -hmm. making sure that everything that we do, no matter which community it may be specifically for is involving all our other communities so we can see each other and recognize each other and be involved with each other. So we were – it was April of this year, uh, two months before Pride, and um, we, you know, were still, you know, finding our footing in our, in our nascent stages. We had been here for, um, I don't know, uh, five or so months, and we were still trying to find our way and see what the community wanted and needed and how we could best serve. And it came to our attention that there hadn't been a Pride event in Princeton. And mm-hmm. we were shocked. And literally everybody that we would talk to thereafter was shocked. Everyone just assumed there was, but there had mm-hmm. not been. So yeah, I, you
2: know, because often people think, you know, if it's a university or something nearby, you know, there's there's this this perceived, I guess, liberalism or that everybody is, is, this is what people often say they come out when they get into university. So, I mean, like to me, you know, here's a place I was surprised.
3: Yes, and so were we. But as I mentioned, Carol and I, I, I'll never forget. She was sitting on the very small couch in my very small office, and (laughs) we realized that, that it couldn't, be that way anymore. That even though it was two months away and that wasn't at all as anybody has planned, any sort of event like that, knows there was no way we had enough time to really coordinate something. But that never stopped us before. And we said, let's just do something, even if it's small, even if it's intimate, even if it you know it has a very small blip on the radar, let's at least put it on the books, put it on the calendar. It's, you know, 50 years stonewall. It's too, mm-hmm. too important that it hasn't happened before, and it's too important this year especially. So let's just do a little something-something and get it down. Mm-hmm. And then next year it will grow, and it will be the beautiful, huge thing it deserves to be. Well, the first thing I did was we have an incredibly supportive mayor, Mayor Liz Lempert, and town council has been really supportive of all our efforts. So the first thing I did, because I want to do everything with the respect and the openness of and for the community, I emailed them and I said, listen, we want to do something for pride, and we want to do it with your support and with your you know, dedicated partnership. Mayor Lempert emailed me back, CC'd everybody on the email, the entire town council, saying, mm-hmm. sounds like a great idea. Like, she didn't hesitate. She didn't say, oh, well, let's talk about, you know, the particulars. Or She just said, this is something that needs to be done. She recognized that. And two months later, only two months later, we were marching in solidarity down the Witherspoon Jackson neighborhood, which goes back to the intersectionality I was talking about before. Because one of our visions was not only to have a pride parade for our LGBTQI community, but to bring in as many other folks, as many other communities, as many other people as possible. Witherspoon Jackson neighborhood is a neighborhood here in Princeton that is uh, very uh, under-recognized and deserving of a lot more respect community of primarily African-American, but now a lot of Latinx folks as well. And we thought, what better place to march in solidarity? And first I went to that community. I went to leaders of that community who I knew and who I didn't know introduced myself. We had conversations. I got their support and made sure that I went to them first before announcing anything, before planning anything, and made sure that they welcomed us into their community. Mm -hmm. And I cannot tell you what a beautiful thing it was to walk up that street and to have those folks be a part of our experience. That there's a history of some um, fraught Um, Mm -hmm. feelings between the African-American community and the Latinx community and the LGBTI community. So if we can bring people together, especially on a day like that, what more beautiful thing can you ask for? But here's the thing. So that small little pride that we were doing became a parade. And that parade became a huge gathering. And as we watched on social media and emails and phone calls and – all sorts of folks and organizations coming out and supporting, with 3,000 people in the street that day. Wow! Wow! And it was, and I didn't even know, because by the way, not only did we have 3,000 folks walking up the street, we had the governor, Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey, and First Lady Tammy Murphy with us that day, and we were overwhelmed, and mm-hmm. I was running after the mayor because he's like a jackrabbit. He's the most amazing, <laughs> energetic, and so supportive. You know, he has a detail, and there was a whole bunch of, you know, parameters and guidelines and restrictions, and, you know, we had to work out all sorts of details, right? SUVs driving up and everything else. So as we're coordinating that morning, I jokingly said, because I'm kind of a uh, an idiot sometimes, I said, you know, and they were like, so, you know, you can have a few of your people come and take a picture with the governor beforehand, and we want to know the speaking order, and, you know, they wanted all the details, right? So, of course, I threw in, you know, and I'd like to give the governor a kiss. You know, totally just just being my usual jerky self. Uh And they come back and say, he'd love to get a kiss. And one of my favorite photos ever is – the governor not only accepting my kiss, but then kissing me back. Oh. And that's the kind of support from mm-hmm. our allies that we can look mm-hmm. to as well. But, mm-hmm. So here's the governor now running up and down the street, knocking on doors, going up to people's porches, getting people out in their pajamas. And these are people who have, would never have had that interaction
2: mm-hmm. without
3: the parade. And the governor oh, wow. has been to Princeton so, so many times. I mean, his house is down the street. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's always gone down Nassau. He's always been on Main Street. He's always been on the street that everybody knows, where all the stores are and all the lights are, and where the university abuts. Right. So this is his first time running down this street with these folks, bringing that experience to them, and that means something. Hmm. You know, we and, often
2: talk about visibility, and you know, and when we're out and doing it, that we also allow other people to come out of their shells and, and do exactly what you said. You know, here he is interesting, with a different part of his constituency where normally he didn't go.
3: And it was, it was the most beautiful day, and, and I had no idea. I was running after the governor at the front of the parade. And, you know, by the way, we had Mike Hotpence as yeah, our grand marshal. Uh-huh. And Mike Pence, for those of your listeners that don't know, they should, is this incredibly mm-hmm. inspirational figure. He is someone who looks so very much like our vice president. Yes, and does. for most of us, that would be a great like Halloween costume. It would be a great dad, you know, and we would do that on occasion when we were going to a party. What Glenn decided to do was that he goes out literally every weekend and some weeknights along with his actual day job and Mm -hmm. shakes his can both literally and figuratively for (laughs) charities that our vice president would never approve of. And Mm -hmm. he's raised tens of thousands of dollars for charities. And he is one of the most inspirational figures I know. He came out and did that for us. We had a tea party with Mike Pence, which was delightful. And at that time we were just planning the parade and I didn't know him at all. And I threw it out there, and he was an alumni of Princeton University. I said, "It would be an incredible honor if you were our Grand Marshal." And mm-hmm. he said, "I was thinking about it. And I didn't want to, uh, you know, offer it, but he was thrilled, and he was our Grand Marshal. So here's Mike Hopkins leading the way, um, our some of our great volunteers as flag bearers, and the governor and first lady running around." You know, kissing and hugging and shaking and, and knocking on doors and doing all that. And I'm, I'm chasing after the governor because that, that's my job, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. What I didn't see and what I didn't know until that evening when we got home and I saw the first pictures, we lined the street from front to back. We went down mm-hmm. the entire Witherspoon Street. And I cried. I couldn't believe the amount of people And at first, we, you know, there's no gauge. It wasn't like Central Park where they can like do like a square footage ratio and know how many people were there. You know, we had Mm -hmm. no idea. So we had always called it about 2,000. And that was a great number in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. But we work with an incredible, the Princeton Police Department, by the way, has been incredibly supportive of us, not only for the parade, but many other things. Also the fire department. Um, Wonderful. Silver uh, Servants and doing great work and really supportive of our communities. So I saw the officer who is our liaison for the parade and for these kind of events, and we were. I actually went to town council just a couple weeks ago to talk about 2020 Pride, and um, he told me that they had the estimate at over 3,000. Wow! So you know, again, just just incredible thing. And it didn't happen in a vacuum. It wasn't me. It wasn't even the center as a whole. It was all our communities coming out and supporting and and the need and desire for it, The, the opportunity to celebrate each other, to, you know, to celebrate how far we've come, but also to be very aware and recognize how far we have yet to go. And that was made crystal to me just the other Day I was in a local uh, shopping mall, uh, and I saw these two teenage girls, and one of them was wearing one of our Pride Parade T-shirts. So I got really excited. I ran up and I I gave her a hug, of course, asking first. But I gave her a hug, and we talked, and I realized that this probably wasn't good optics for this fifty-year-old man to be like Mm -hmm. hugging and so excited and shouting at these two teenage girls in the middle of the mall. But I Mm -hmm. couldn't help myself.
0: It was wonderful,
3: and she was so excited. We took uh, what the kids call a selfie. and mm-hmm. um, But here's the thing. She was so excited, and she was so excited that I was able to tell her that Pride 2020 was happening on June 20th. Yes, I'm announcing it here. June 20th, mm-hmm. 20, Princeton mm-hmm. Pride back again. But she was so excited. But here's the thing. Her friend who was with her, I said, hey, were you at the parade? And she says, no, I couldn't go. I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You'll join us uh, in 2020. It'll be fantastic. And she said, no, I can't go. Uh, My parents would never let me. Mm. You know, and it was at that moment where you have this realization, yeah, we have come so far. And here's this one girl who's so excited. And it was her first Pride event. And she came out and she was thrilled and felt identified and recognized and celebrated but right next to her is her friend who won't be able to share in that experience. Mm-hmm. And that's the work we do, right? We celebrate mm-hmm. how far we've come and what we can do, but we always recognize and make sure that we are aware of how far we have yet to go.
2: There's sometimes a false narrative. People think that everything is great. But regularly I meet someone who I would think is of an age where we say, oh, well, if these young kids, it doesn't matter. But it does. It still matters. Many of them are still living closeted lives, And I think that the other thing that I think that was great about about this whole with the pride and everything, not only were you able to identify with these two young women, but the fact that afterwards you went back and talked about who wasn't represented, how do we do that, how do we, we bring the whole community in and recognize that we still have some shortcomings, you know, I think that the part that misgendering and, you know, you see some people in our community who go like, well, you know, that doesn't really matter, or, or that's just young people. They don't know what they want to be. But you took that seriously and raised that level of discussion and opened that, that place where that young person could come in and say, hey, my preferred pronouns are this and that, and it's not just a craze. This is what it means. And that's how we continue to evolve as a community.
3: Right, it, right. you're exactly right. That's why I love speaking with you so, so much. You recognize these things and your listeners recognize these things and we recognize these things as a community that each step we take allows all of us to move forward, right? But then we have mm-hmm. to recognize as we take these steps, there are others that are going to join us and we have to welcome them with open arms into the journey, into the evolution you know, into the parade, into the march, into the solidarity, you know, and if we don't speak with one voice, we're never going to get anywhere. You know, it's all of us together or it's all of us nowhere, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I'm very aware of that. I'm very cognizant of that each and every day because I work as an ally mm-hmm. and I am incredibly honored and thrilled and, and proud that so many communities will allow me to hear of their struggles and to hear of what's happening to them individually or communally, and to allow me to help them make it better. Um, but one of the things that I'm really, really wary of and always cognizant of is that I will never speak for anyone, mm-hmm. but I will always speak with everyone.
2: And you know what, and when I talk to people, particularly members of the trans community, that's exactly what they said. I said, well, what would you say to an ally? And what do you look for from an ally? And what you're doing is exactly what people identify as trans, people who identify as queer. You know, that's what they're looking for, not someone to come in. You know, you and I both know that there are certain experiences that we can't talk for. You know, we can open the door, but, you know, they have to have their voice, and it seems like that stays constantly on your mind. How, what keeps it there, and how do, you, how do you, like when you see other people who are, are trying to do that, if you were to counsel them, like, you know, if you want to be an ally, this is what you have to remind yourself every day.
3: Um, well, you know, it's really, really difficult because, you know, as we're talking about, you know, our struggles, our personal struggles, and my personal struggles, I deal with, Um, honestly, I deal with grandiosity. I deal with arrogance. I I have that as a part of my personality. And some of it is really actually very beneficial for the center and for the work we do because it allows me to push forward that much stronger and better. But I also have to be constantly aware of it. And one of the things is this. I'm going to give you a few stories, a few snapshots. Sure. Um, I, I remember... One of the first steps in my evolution, in my journey, was when I was 11 years old. And we were on the Jersey Turnpike, and we were going to my poppy's funeral. My poppy was my, um, my mom's dad, and he was the most wonderful, gregarious guy. He owned a luncheonette in Brooklyn that was uh, famous, and he was a, you know, a celebrity. And um, when my mom moved to New Jersey, she moved to a community of ex-Brooklynites, and she was a quasi-celebrity because everyone's like, oh, Jack was your dad. I just go to the lunch all the time. So he was this incredible, incredible person, right? I mean, my son is named after him. Mm-hmm. But he also had this blind spot. He also had this difficulty. And my uncle, who is um, 20 years my elder, time, he's 31. And my uncle couldn't come out because my poppy, wouldn't have accepted it and only after my poppy died could my uncle be the person he always was and even at 11 I recognized this and I heard this and it it hit me like a brick wall and I I saw the injustice of this and I saw the difficulty in this because he was a a man my poppy I loved so much having this incredible Difficulty with his son and his son not being able to be who he was for 30 years of his life. Mm -hmm. And that always stayed with me. And it stayed with me, you know, um, as I became uh, a school teacher and as I became an advocate and an ally. And it's something that always informed me. And then, you know, when I was in eighth grade, I took one of my best friends to the prom. And my mom asked me, she said, what does she look like? And I described her, and I, I said she's beautiful, and she has black hair, and she's really pretty, and da it right. I never mentioned that she was African American. I mm. just it didn't occur to me. It didn't. It didn't mm-hmm. matter to me, right? And at first, I always told that story and said, "Look how great I am." It didn't matter to me. But then I realized that we got to the dance, and there were some really horrible, ugly people who shouted really horrible, ugly things um, to her and to me because we were a mixed-race couple, because we, you know, shouldn't have been there together. And um, it was pretty horrible. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to be a school teacher, you know, years later, actually teaching, by the way, in that same school that I went to a middle, uh, in middle school when I went to that prom. And I was able to help a wonderful um, young person. You know, after I started the Gay Straight Alliance in that school – Uh, people will come to me and say, oh, there's this young person who needs your help, your advocacy, your allyship. Can you reach out? And we sent an invitation out to this wonderful young person who was being bullied at their school, a neighboring school, to such an extent they had to be homeschooled. And they were considering suicide. And it was just a horrific, horrific thing. So we sent them an invite to one of our rainbow dances. We had the most fabulous rainbow dances because who better than a GSA to throw a fabulous dance? So we invited this student to our dance and didn't hear back. So I was disappointed, but not every outreach works, right, and not every snaps. Mm-hmm. We're at the dance, and I see this young purple-haired student holding up the wall, the very essence of a wallflower, <laughs> and kind of just standing there. So, of course, I go up and say, hey, you know, where are all your friends? You know, did you come here with anybody? And they said, I don't have any friends. I don't go to this school. So I are like, oh, my gosh. I realized it was this student, this person who we had reached out to. And I, I grabbed their hand. I took them over to my GSA kids, and they danced, and they sang, and they screamed and laughed the entire night. And then after the dance, I went outside, And there were their parents who were in the parking lot for the three hours of the dance waiting, anxiously, terrified about what was happening. Mm -hmm. And um, their child came out with a smile on their face for the first time in months. And we all hugged and cried. And then I had the most incredible experience of being able to be an advocate for them as they sued their school district because their school district didn't do any anti-bullying, which is a law requirement here in New Jersey, to help this student. So uh, what we did after months and months and months of fighting hours and hours and hours across boardrooms and tables and so on and so forth, um, I got them to the school board, paid for this student to go to my school so they would be safe, and paid for their transportation to go to my school. And when they got to my school, not only did they become president of our GSA and start living their true life, but came to me one day and apologized. And I said, what are you apologizing Mm. for? And they said, well, being here and being safe, I've realized who I really am, and they're going to transition. Mm. And they apologized because they were like, this is going to cause you a lot of strife and difficulty because it's going to be a really hard process, and I'm sure there will be a lot of resistance From the administration and from fellow students and so on and so forth and i thanked them and said no this is just another part of your journey and the fact that i get to be a part of this as well is an honor and they became the first transgender student in my school and i learned so much i learned more from them and inspired more by them than they ever learned or inspired by me and all those stories I'm telling not because I want to say, hey, I'm a great guy, and I recognize these things, and I'm aware, and, you know, and I evolved, and those are all true. But I tell those stories because this is something I realized in the past year. I used to dine out in those stories. I used to go to, you know, go to events, and those would be my go-to stories to talk about mm-hmm. the center and the work we're doing. And it worked. Of course it worked. They're great stories. Mm -hmm. They're true stories, and they're valid stories, and they're emotionally uh, impactful and meaningful, and all that is true. But what I realized is they're not my stories to tell, that each of those people, they were affected by those things. I wasn't affected by those things. I was a witness I was sometimes a participant. I was sometimes someone who who could be of some small service, but they were their stories. And that's what I had to acknowledge. And that was, I think, really the moment where I could be a true ally and advocate because I realized these were not my stories. As much as you can be witness, as much as you can be a part of those stories, a participant even, to be a Mm -hmm. part of the journey, even if you're alongside someone for the entire expanse, of that journey it's still not your story and all you can do is learn from it and have it inform who you are and what you can do for others but never ever imagine for even a second that it's yours
2: you know i think uh, one of the things that that struck me like when you were talking about that because especially about the parents sitting outside you know um in July, I happened to be on a panel with Robert Marchman, and he's one on the National Board of PFLAG. And then later on, I got a chance to talk to him. And one of the things that he said what, that that got him engaged is like he has an openly gay son. He said he can't tell his son's story, but what he what he remembered was that fear as a parent as to like what would happen to to him, and to be able to tell that story to other members of a, of a community, uh, you know, and hopefully touching them as parents to understand, you know, what can happen to your son. But he said exactly the same thing, that the story, the coming out story and what his son went through was his son's story and how he could reach another group, you know, the parent part and, and allies, but he had to step back and let his son tell his story.
3: Yeah, that's that's the way we all learn. That's where we all grow. Mm-hmm. Is, is we all have uh, uh, yeah, stories to tell.
2: Uh, yeah. Did your ideals about the community, like initially you wanted to to start these, these gay-straight alliances and what that meant, but your ideal of service to the community, how has that evolved?
3: Well, I, you know, it evolved because I was personally... Um, invested in the in the LGBTQI community, you know, from uh-huh. you know that when, you know from my okay. uncle and his inspiration, and you know, and then in college, I would you know go to the GMHC, the Gay Men's Health Crisis, you know, uh-huh. to their thons and their walkathons, and, and my first nonprofit actually before I started teaching was the Creatures of Awareness Theater Company, and uh, we did plays across Central New Jersey. And we raised over $10,000 for the wonderful Hyacinth AIDS Foundation here in Jersey that do great work. And I'm proud to say that we're partnering with them, too, on uh, projects. And um, that was always something that was near and dear to my heart. But as I, you know, my journey as a school teacher and seeing my students and seeing um, my students of color and my students from various different religious communities and my Latinx students and especially my immigrant uh, family students you know one of the things that's really great is that uh, where I taught Heightstown was one of the first sanctuary cities way back in the day and it was actually a sanctuary city that was started by a Republican mayor one of the first and only Republicans I ever loved his name was Bob Patton and he Mm -hmm. was an incredible incredible advocate and he allowed Heightstown become a sanctuary city and by the way Heightstown is an incredibly difficult town with a very fraught history. The KKK used to have a big stronghold uh, in Heights town and to grow from that and evolve from that under a Republican mayor to becoming a sanctuary city, you know, and now it's a thriving community. Now it's, it, you know, there's uh, incredible people there. So my my outlook and my vision was expanded by just seeing my students in the classroom and in the hallways and in the cafeteria, uh, as they got picked up and dropped off from school, um, I was able to see their interactions, and I was able to be witness to their difficulties, and their struggles, and also their victories, and that allowed me to grow into seeing how this become. And it wasn't a term I was familiar with, to be honest. But how we could become. Mm-hmm. An intersectional community you know and one of the interesting things that happened was um, Humble Brad, I won um, something called the uh, champion of equality award for New Jersey and it was it was a really huge honor and it was for my work starting that that base trade alliance um, but it was part of a human and civil rights dinner that had been before exclusively for the African American and civil rights Um, division of this organization and when i won this award they had sectioned off 10 minutes of the evening for me to win this award for me to be presented this award now that community and every right they had to feel this way felt like it was cutting into a chunk of their time of their Mm -hmm. recognition which it literally was right Mm -hmm. i see that and i appreciate that and i could see the resistance to it and I understood it. And when I got up to accept the award, I realized that there was an incredible opportunity here. And as people were murmuring and the tinkling of silverware, it was very difficult for me to be heard and there was really as I said that this this, you know, people who were not so comfortable or happy with me taking up this time. In my acceptance speech, I started to talk about my family. And I started to talk about the support they gave me and the love that I had and the community that we established as a family. And that resonated with the folks in the audience. And the murmuring died down, the tinkling of silver stopped, and there was a connection made. And I really had an epiphany. I really understood this is how we come together through mutual experiences, through understanding of respect and kindness and what we have in common. Not what divides us, but what we have that unites us. And we have to hold on to that. And in the past few years, as our national climate has gotten so incredibly worse and is hateful and embraces bullying, you know, and is such a a whiplash from the previous administration and our previous national climate and how many strides we had made and how many that we're losing, I realized that this was a unique opportunity, and this is something else I was taught, that when others see difficulty, I see opportunity. I see that on a national level, there is hate and there is ugliness and there is uh, uh, disrespect and a, a lack of kindness, in fact, that, that really is a hatred, honestly. But I see it on the local level, in the community, that we can band together. And really, that's what the Biogrest Center for Social Justice, one of the cornerstones that I saw was that we could bring everyone together for perhaps the first time ever, that our communities finally recognize that we all just want to be seen and to be heard and honestly be loved. And -hmm. if we can just understand that and speak to that and see that in each other, then we have more than a fighting chance. We have a victory in our hands. Mm -hmm. Wow.
2: Well, with that, we're going to take our second break. And then uh, we're going to talk about what's happened in this past year, some of the other initiatives, and how people can support the center. We'll be right back. Curant Collections by Michelle Brown. I mean, I was looking, of course, I always go to the website, you know, to, to, uh, and I follow your website, I follow your page, because, you know, there are so many things that you and I agree on, and I get inspiration also from seeing it. Like I said, I saw the windows, I found an open space, and I think one of the things that I liked about the windows and the open space I hear people talk about, oh, we have to have these brave, safe spaces for the LGBTQI community, and sometimes they're hidden, they're off. But I also know the power of visibility, the fact that, you know, I know I was in, here we have a center in Ferndale, Michigan, where the front is windows, and we were sitting in there, and someone walked in who was visiting from another city for a conference, helping to walk by, and it was like, she was like she had found her tribe, and it was a place that she knew in a city that she didn't know, that here was a place where she could come in and be amongst people who understood her, other members of the LGBTQI community. And as I looked at your center, and here were these windows. Here's people doing yoga. Here's people reading and, and doing all that. that it, it's like it's a part of that space, but also that visibility. But that is safe. And that's brave, you know, because you're sitting there, when you walk in that door, often you hear young LGBTQ people say, well, I didn't want to go in there because everybody would know I'm gay. But here's a place where it says, yes, everybody here will know that you're gay, but it's all right. You're with family. We love and support you. Do you how important is that? And do you, do you recognize that in that community? Do you see that making change?
3: That, it's amazing that you're saying this, because one of our big initiatives coming up in 2020 is going to be transitioning from a safe space to a brave space. Um, and there are a lot of people who aren't aware of that term. It's, it's, it's uh, gotten a lot of play in academic circles and in some communities. But um, I was really struck with the idea, and that's what I want to move us into. A safe space is wonderful. And it's very important, and it's still very necessary. But a safe space is confining, mm-hmm. whereas a brave space is defining. And I'd much rather our kids and our elders, by the way, because we serve our elder community in a big way. And I mm-hmm. want our entire community throughout the entire age spectrum to understand that it's, it's no longer enough. I believe, and I've heard this from a lot of people in our community, to come and have a space where you can be safe. It is time for us to have a space where you can come and shout, and you can come and be loud and proud. Now, that's not that's – not, some people are not ready for that. Some people, that's not where they are in their journey, and I respect that. And we'll always be a safe space. We'll always be there for those folks as well but I want to really come out strong and I want our community to know this is a place where we're going to come and you have these open windows and you're going to be visible and you're going to be seen and you're going to be recognized you're going to be loved. And that's who we are and that's who you are. But a brave space is something else to me too. A brave space will allow all our beautifully diverse communities to come together and not only accept but challenge each other have a space where we can ask the difficult questions of each other and of ourselves and grow and evolve and really become a true unified community. Because only after we understand each other and confront each other can we really come together. And there are questions we have and there are questions we should have and there are questions that should be answered, should be asked, and should be respected and should be welcomed. And some of those questions are indeed difficult. But if we don't confront them, then they're always going to be nagging at us. They're always going to be in the background. They're always going to be playing at our worst, and it's time for us to be at our best. And the only way we're at our best is if we really, truly hear and see each other. So that's what a brave space means to me, and that's what we're hoping to evolve into in 2020. Um, And the way we do that is by not only embracing the future, but recognizing and celebrating our past. And one of the other things that came out of the Pride Parade, which was incredible, we met Frank Mahood. Frank Mahood and uh, his husband Chet are incredible people. Frank was one of um, the founding members of Gay People Princeton, which was an offshoot of the Gay Alliance of Princeton. And these two organizations were way back in 1972 and 74. They were the first gay rights organization here in our community. Prince University. Their founder wrote a letter at the Prince University newspaper in 1972 asking for other uh, people of the community if they would come out, if they would support, if they would meet. This, at that time, you have to understand how incredibly brave that was. And there was a flag, a pride flag outside someone's window that was immediately vandalized and torn down and the, the room was ransacked. Their first march that they did, that they participated in, they wore bags over their head because they couldn't Mm. dare to have their identities be seen. So in the 50 years since, think about that journey. But also, they were forgotten. You know, this group that did such incredibly important work in our community had been left behind because they disbanded after a successful, very successful, very incredible run of events and programming and meetings. And when Frank came to us and he told us about this, I was so incredibly excited. And we started talking, talking, talking. And all those conversations have resulted in now at the center, we have a dedicated archive of gay people Princeton. We have a scrapbook that has the minutes from their meeting, and the articles in the newspaper. And we have the first poster for a gay dance on Prince University. We have their old banner. And Mm -hmm. it's an amazing thing that we're we're honored to hold this history now. So our younger people can come in and see that doesn't happen in a vacuum, that things Mm -hmm. have happened before us. But what's even more amazing is that one of the things that Frank did was he went out and he interviewed founding members and existing members of these groups and did these great little video interviews. And we thought that'd be a great thing. We're going to have, we had an opening to celebrate the archive. And again, the mayor came and the town council came. And these folks who, um, surviving members of these groups, came out from far and wide. And they were celebrating, recognized for the first time. And it was, it was such a beautiful thing. But what I realized also is that Frank had these video snippets that we we're going to use as just kind of a, an offshoot of the archive mm-hmm. that was the makings of a movie. And we showed the first 20 minutes that he had done to the audience. And people were laughing and crying and gasping, and it was an amazing thing to witness. And now, uh, coming up on the 13th of December, we're going to show the full movie. Frank has created an hour-and-a-half documentary about this incredibly important gay rights organization that was founded and forgotten in our community that now we're bringing back. And what's even more beautiful about that is, as I said, everything we do is exponential. So not only are we doing this, but we're partnering with the Historical Society of Princeton. And they are recognizing this group, and it's the first piece of queer history in their archives. And these are things that we're doing, and these are things we'll continue to do.
2: Now, I noticed that one of the things, which is is interesting, but you're starting an urban gardening and food education program. I mean, and... That is a social justice issue it all it, it all melts together, but what brought you
3: to to that well and this is this is the wonderful thing about the community is um, Carol and I went in our nascent stages um, before we even had the physical space because we have been doing this work for I was setting up the foundation of the center for about eight months before we moved into a space. I wanted to hit the ground running, and as you see, we mm-hmm. did, um, but we went to this wonderful. Uh, the school teacher, one of the things that we do is we advocate and we go out to other schools that want to start Gay-Straight Alliances, we go, go out across the country, so if you're a school teacher, an advisor, uh, an administrator, a counselor who wants to start GSA in your school, please contact us and we'll be glad to advise you and to come out if you want to your school and support you. Uh, the law and righteousness is on your side and we will make sure it happens. And we went out to Perth Amboy, which is a difficult neighborhood. And Steph Salvador was the name of the teacher. And she invited us out to to help her start up her GSA. And she was incredibly inspirational. And it took months, but we did it. We started the first GSA in Perth Amboy. And Steph was so inspirational to me personally and to the center professionally that I invited her to be our first community liaison. And community liaisons, if you go to our webpage or if you see what we do, we have an Mm -hmm. incredible board of directors who I respect and admire and are uh, so proud to have with us. But perhaps even more so is our community liaisons, the folks who came to me from staff as an epiphany and have grown to more than a dozen, perhaps even two dozen at this point, are people who, again, me, as a uh, mostly straight, somewhat fluid, white, cisgender male, I can't speak for any community, so I need folks. I, I absolutely cherish the folks who come to me and bring me their voices, bring us their voices, bring the center their voices. So they're dedicated community liaisons who speak uh-huh. to their community, of their community, for their community, with their community, so we can do that in, in a, a valid and respectful way. So Steph came to us and I said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be a dedicated member of our community. I want you to be our first community liaison. And I mistakenly thought that she would join us as an out and proud lesbian, as a strong advocate for her queer community. And she said no, that she loved being part of that community, that she wanted a strong voice in that community, that she would always support and would help us with that community. But her real... And her strong desire was to speak to um, urban gardening, food education, the food desert that so many uh-huh. of our communities face. And that was something I never, you know, I'm being totally upfront, I'm always honest, never thought about as a piece of what we would do. Although obviously it is tremendously a facet of social justice. And she brought that to us. And she had incredible, last spring, incredible cooking classes and te- taught these kids from these various marginalized communities how best to, to, to grow their own food, to make their own food, and then to eat their own food. And what incredible process that is to see these kids see that journey of how food is, is grown, made, and then cooked, and it's theirs. And that's that pride of ownership, right? Um, so we've been working on this program um, almost since we first moved in. And we've had volunteers. We had a volunteer who came. Her name is Jean Myers. Um, she came uh, and she planted uh, I, hundreds of bulbs uh, around in and around the center. You know, And these are folks that, that hear of what we're doing, are inspired by what we're doing, and then allow us to fortify and bring something to our programming, which I myself never would have thought to be a part of what we do. And that's the... I think that might be my favorite part of the entire journey is that we, now we have people come to us and say, this is important. You need to do this. And I allow that. We allow that. We make that opportunity happen. You know, the center is now that is now this nexus for all these folks to come and say, this is social justice. We're doing a climate strike on Friday with a bunch Mm -hmm. of inspirational teenagers from the local high school and university who are doing a climate strike. And all we're doing is we're helping them prepare the rally. We're keeping ourselves in the background. We're not advertising. We're not talking about our involvement. We're not doing it for the optics of it. We're doing it because they want and came to us for help because they know that we organize rallies and events and they want our guidance. And instead of saying, yeah, sure, of course, put our name on top of it and, you know, and we're going to be, no, we just want to make sure that the community can do the best they can do and keep true to whatever they want to do it as.
2: You know, and I think that that's so important because often, you know, I'll talk to, you know, people in the community and it's like, okay, well we want you to come and only talk about this, but here she is so aware I mean, and, and that's what it is. You know, everyone, we have more than just one, one little box. Don't put us in the silo. Here she is, and she brought a totally different thing that she opened up about, you know, these, these about food and justice and how it's all, you know, she didn't have to stay in her lesbian box. She could go and talk about all of this, and it grew the community.
3: Yep, and, and that's that's how we do it. You know, I do I do want to mention um, that we have the incredible honor of being associated with and partnering with Walter Nagel, who is Bayard Rustin's partner. Um, and Walter uh, is such an incredible inspiration in and of himself. And the mm-hmm. fact that he is with us as a dedicated community liaison also um, just means the world to me and to everybody at the center. Um, when, I, when I first wanted to use Bayard Rustin's name, uh, my lovely bride who's a lawyer insisted that I get permission to do such and i really didn't want to do that i thought we're a nonprofit we'll just put the name on the on the you know on the sign and who's going to you know who's going to question a nonprofit using a name right but she's like no do it right okay. and uh so i reached out and it was uh a difficult process to get in touch with what what, what was the rustin fund which the, you know the um the organization that that Uh, make sure that Bayard's name is protected and used correctly and ended up being on the phone with who I thought was representative of the, of the fund and was, but it happened to be Walter, his own self. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of flabbergasted. And that's rare for me to be uh, almost speechless as you can probably uh, surmise from this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, it was an incredible honor to speak with him. And I told him what, what, We wanted to do what I wanted to do, how I was going to be respectful and honor the name and what it meant and what the intersectionality of Bayard's name and what our mission was to make sure no one was ever left behind again. And Walter was reluctant because there is still tremendous blowback whenever you talk about Bayard and his name. And there's still a lot of people who want to tamp him down and want to not give him the respect or the acknowledgement he deserves. Um, and he had his misgivings, but he said, okay, you you use the name, let's see, Let's see. Let's see what you do with it, is what he said. Let's see what you do with it. I'll never forget uh-huh. that. And I said, okay, so I thought, like probationary basis, right? <laughs> so months pass, and we're doing our good work, so we set up the center, and we're here in our space, and one of the things you do as a nonprofit is you always put out invitations, you always put out feelers, and you think that, okay, this is not going to work out this time, but at least it puts you on people's radar. So I invited Walter out for Bayard's birthday, of all things, and that was a a ballsy move in and of itself because, you know, Walter gets dozens of invitations to come out and speak and be present on Bayard's actual birthday. But I thought, what a better opportunity. And I thought he would say no, And then we would, you know, then the next time I asked him, he might say, okay, I said no last time, but let's give these guys a break, right? But he actually said yes, and he came out, and we had one of our first huge, beautiful events where he came out, we screened Brother Outsider, which is the wonderful documentary about Bayard's life, and then we had this incredible conversation in front of so many people where we talked about Bayard, and we talked to Walter, and about the center, and it was pretty phenomenal. And I remember at the end of it, I said to him, I said, well, I guess we passed the audition. <laughs> and uh, and then since then, he's become stronger and stronger and stronger ally of the center. Um, he actually called me a few weeks ago of his own accord and um, wanted to come visit. And he brought with him Bayard's walking stick, which we oh, now wow. have possession of here at the center and we have it up on the wall and I look at it every day and I think how, here we go, lucky we are, mm-hmm. how fortunate we are, and how serendipitous it all is that we are able to bring together all of these people and well, you know, create this community.
2: Well, you know, and, and you know to add to that, because through you, I met Walter, I interviewed him thought it was great. He told me about the book that was coming out, and then when you did a book signing, I said, "Make sure I get one and you know he sent it to me with a beautiful inscription, "I go to Atlanta okay, and I'm at an all day workshop, and one of the people there works with young people in the juvenile justice center, and it shows you she's saying like you know, and many of them she meets our LGBTQI. a she said so she was introducing them to Martin Luther King, you know, as other ways of doing it. And I happened to have, I had gotten the book right before I left. I've got the book in my hand. And at the break, I said, you know, this book, I mean, this is the age group that you're talking about. It's so important. She said, you know, how people don't talk. And she was also so a lesbian. She was like, you know, people never talk about Bayard Rustin. You know, he was important. There wasn't any material. And I said, well, don't you think how great it would be to show this book? And she was like, yeah, you know, I've got to get some books. So I said, you know, I will get you some books. And I contacted you. You put me in touch with the publisher. The publisher then I told her what I wanted to do. She said, you know, you can get them at, at, at cost. I said, I'm going to give them to the center. And then she said, you know what, and I'm going to donate books also. And in short order, I had this box full of books that I took over there to be used with young people to learn, you know, about Bayard Reston. We, called, we said we were developing a new generation of angelic troublemakers so like you said there's no coincidences but hear how that one thing with your wife saying you know ask him for your permission and him putting you you auditioning for us we've helped a bunch of kids learn about not only buyer, but these methods
3: of creating change yeah and that that's everything to me that 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 story encapsulates everything that I want the center to be, that you and I kept a relationship, that we talked and connected and kept talking and connecting. And that's, what, that's the world. That's, that's what you have to do. And because of that, exactly, you just said that story you just told, look at all those. How many other folks would have left it at that point? But then it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. And now all these other things have happened. And all these hundreds of people are going to know more about Bayard Rustin. And City Lights, that's the name of the publisher in San Francisco, they're incredible. And mm-hmm. they, they were supportive of us when we had the, the signing with Walter. And I love the fact that they were so supportive of you. Mm-hmm. And now how many more people know who Bayard Rustin was, how many more people understand how important Walter Nagel is, and how many more people know how wonderful you are than you are. Oh, wow, thank you, love.
2: You know, and, and really, and, and, and how many young people are going to be inspired to continue this work, you know, that, that we do, that they're doing, and that he did, you know, and that Walter really – supports and that's part of continuing this legacy to make sure that this happens. And this is just like, so such important work. But we're coming towards the end and not only of our time here together, but also of the year. And I know that we're going into a new year and we want to keep the the center going. I see that there's so many ways. I know you've got a library. um, You're doing the pride parade, but what would you tell people can they do to support the center there in Princeton, but to support the work?
3: Well, there, as you said, there's, there's a tremendous, tremendous potential and possibility for support of the center. First and foremost, it is the holiday season, and we would be really honored, and it would mean a great deal to us. Uh, a great many of our programs that we offer, as you've heard me talk about today, are offered free or on a sliding scale uh, to our entire community no one will ever be turned away from what we do for lack of financial opportunity. Um, so any sort of monetary donation would be incredibly beneficial to our programming moving forward, and that's, that's the truth of it. And that's mm-hmm. on our website at runcenter.org. There's a big blue donate button on almost every <laughs> page, and that takes okay. us to the great PayPal Giving Fund, and I have to say PayPal is wonderful, that the PayPal Giving Fund... You give a donation there, and there's no percentage taken out on either side. Um, People can also send us checks, and they can drop by and drop off cash. We have wonderful merchandise you can purchase here at the center. But there's also, we relish the opportunity for people to come, whether you're visiting, whether you want to come to see the center in and of itself, whether you live somewhere close in the community in New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, around Virginia, wherever you want to come from, Washington, D.C., we are here, and we are open every day. I'm here at, at – uh, the latest I get here is, is 7 o'clock in the morning. If I'm here mm-hmm. after that, I feel like I'm not doing my work right. Um, <laughs> we are always here, and we welcome people to come by. And as I, I hope you've heard and understood, your your listeners, that we in, we so not only welcome but need people to come in and give – of themselves um, and what they can offer to us so we can better serve the community, uh, so we can do the best job we can to do good works of the people, um, make good trouble, as it were. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you said, we also have a wonderful social justice library that we started uh, from the very get-go and uh, has grown to be over 300 books rich, each and every one donated by a member of the community. Some are off off of our our Amazon wish list, which is still running. And many of them, my favorite ones, are the ones that are gently or wonderfully abused uh, from Mm -hmm. people's homes. We have Mm -hmm. an incredible first edition of a Paul Robeson book on our shelves. uh, And we have signed copies of, of course, uh, Walter's books. And we've had a a tremendous amount of authors here. We had Hugh Ryan here from the uh, New York Times bestseller, When Brooklyn Was Queer, um, and he was incredible, and that's just about to announce that after a year, our social justice library is going to become a bona fide lending library, but basically, as Carol Watchler, who I mentioned before, who is our community outreach coordinator, says it best, we welcome any donation of time, talent, or treasure. We have tremendous, tremendous opportunities coming up in the next year. Not only are we doing Pride 2020, which we're going to walk up Witherspoon Street again through the Witherspoon-Jackson neighborhood because we never leave behind our allies, but we're going to go all the way up to Nassau Street now, that main street, and we're going to cross over and we're actually going to enter into Princeton University. We're going to enter through the gates of Prince University, which also is a tremendous thing because years ago, not so many years ago but people of color were not allowed, women were not allowed to go through those gates. So to walk through those gates at our Pride Parade is a message and a statement in and of itself. Um, we're going to have a Princeton's First Dance-A-Thon. We're going to have a great dance thon We're going to partner with our friends at GMHC, who we helped to reinvigorate the AIDS Dance-A-Thon just a few weeks ago. Uh, and there's so many programs and exciting things coming up, um, and we just want everybody to be a part of it, whether you live close to us, whether you are across the country from us, or in another country. in the And what is the
2: best way for someone to contact this center?
3: They can reach out to me personally. Um, you can reach out to Rustin Center, R-U-S-T-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R at gmail.com. That's uh, that's the center's email, but I, uh, as chief activist, I answer each and every email we get. Our website is really robust, at WestonCenter.org, and I have to say, tools of the devil and all, but our Facebook page is pretty great too.
2: Oh yeah, you know, I mean, really, there are so many great pictures, and and I think that I like is like like community. I mean, and it's like you see the love. I mean, you really see the love. There's lots of hugging here. Yeah. There smiles. I mean, there's there's this community that is, to me, like, just so amazing. Uh, Really amazing.
3: I I appreciate that you see that, and I appreciate all the support you've given us and the love you give us, and I cannot wait to give you one of those hugs in person. Yay! Me (laughs) me too.
2: Me too. Yeah. um... I want to thank
1: my guest. Chief Activist at the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice, Robert Seda Schreiber. The center moved into its new home in Princeton, New Jersey in 2019. Named for the civil rights leader, who was the primary architect of a 1963 march on Washington, the Rustin Center is an educational enclave and a brave, safe space for all people. Rustin's partner Walter Nagel not only gave his blessing for the naming, but serves as a community liaison for the organization. The center led the first Pride Parade in Princeton, New Jersey, held book signings for LGBT authors, while hosting a variety of community building programs last year. You can learn more about their efforts and how to support the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice by visiting their Facebook page or its website, www.restincenter.org. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Radio on social media. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.